Do you ever find yourself in a rough place? Find yourself at that time when things are not going well for you? You're discouraged? Feel like everything is against you? The world is stacked against you, as it were? Have you ever felt the burden of leadership? Where you're seeking to lead and you turn and look behind you and there's nobody there? Have you ever experienced that? Moses experienced such things, to be sure. After being used mightily of God to lead the people out of Egypt through a series of ten incredible miraculous judgments upon the nation of Egypt, crossing of the Red Sea and the entering into the Promised Land, there at the foot of Mount Sinai, entering into covenant with the Lord, the people promising that all that the Lord has said we will do. Then Moses is called by God up to the mountain again to receive the, the Ten Commandments and to bring them down to the people. And while he's away, of course you know the story, people gave their earrings to Aaron and he threw them in the fire and bingo, out popped a golden calf. Poor Moses. He was beside himself. He didn't want to go on. He didn't want to go forward. He begged God, please, just give me a a glimpse of your glory. Help me out here. So God says to him, no man can see me and live, but I will shield you in the cleft of a rock, a cave. And I will pass by before you and speak my name and that you may get a a glimpse of my glory. And so the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses was strengthened by the Lord and continued forth to lead his people, a rebellious and stiff-necked people. The Father says that he is compassionate and gracious. That is who he is. That is his nature. That is his character. He delights in being gracious and compassionate. It's not a strain for him. He doesn't have to work it up. It flows out from who he is. Our God is a gracious God. Our God is a compassionate God. He delights in doing good because he is gracious and compassionate. And he delights in doing good to his people. And beloved, one of the great goods that God does for us is our adoption as sons. That he makes us children. That he severs our legal commitments and attachments to the old world, to the world of sin and death. And he adopts us into his family. He becomes our father, and he shares with us the inheritance of his own beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is amazing and marvelous blessing of God. Open your Bibles to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus as we continue in our fourth and final part of this message entitled Sharing Sonship. Sharing Sonship. And in particular, verses 5 and 6 of the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, where the apostle Paul writes there, 
Just as he chose us in him, that is in Christ before the foundation of the world, excuse me, the fourth, that's the fourth verse, that we should be holy and, holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Four messages ago, we looked at those verses. It seems like it was an eternity now. But four messages ago, we looked at those verses and, and came to understand what the Apostle Paul was talking about there. And then following that, we have been looking at the benefits of our adoption. The benefits of our adoption, which, which stimulates Paul's spontaneous praise and eulogy of God the Father. And we noted that there were 15 benefits that we were looking at, 15 benefits of adoption. And these 15 benefits are like, like facets of a diamond. Every time we turn it and see another, we are, we are amazed again as the, as the light is refracted through it and, and its brilliance of color opens up to us. It is just incredible to think about. That we are children of the living God. So 15 of these benefits, and we were looking at them in order to lift our faith up out of the trap of cold orthodoxy. To fan the flames, to cause the, the embers to glow brightly. Like Moses, who needed a vision of God in his glory. To go on. Some of you out there this morning need a fresh vision of God too. You need the encouragement that comes from His Word as we look at and contemplate these benefits of our adoption as sons. So we said there were 15 of them, and quickly to go through that list and catch up with ourselves because they do sort of build on each other as we turn the diamond. But first it was the indwelling Holy Spirit. The first benefit of adoption was the indwelling Holy Spirit who frees us from bondage to sin and enables and promotes our fellowship with the Father. It all begins there. That our adoption is a function of the indwelling Spirit of God. Secondly, it was the witness to our sonship that comes via that indwelling by God's Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who communicates to our spirit, first and foremost through His Word, that we are children of the living God. And we can know this and be assured of this reality. And third, that brings about intimacy with the Father. That God is not distant from us. But God is intimate with us, close to us. That we are adopted as sons, and as Paul says here in verse 6 of Ephesians 1, in the beloved, that we become beloved children of the living God. Fourth, as a result of our status as sons and the intimacy that we enjoy with our Father, we have the privilege of coming boldly at any time into the presence of God in prayer. No need to call ahead, no need to make an appointment. Any time, any place, anywhere, any concern can be brought into the presence of God and know that He cares, that He hears, and that He is active in responding to those prayers on behalf of His people. Fifth, the promise when we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to pray, we don't know what to ask for in prayer, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us in our weakness, in our burdens that are too heavy to bear. Again, if you find yourself this morning in that place in life where, where it's so heavy upon you that you just don't know what to do, you don't know the will of God, you don't know what to ask for, the truth be told, a groan would be the most you could muster. Know this, that the Spirit of God is actively intervening for you on your behalf, and He knows the mind of the Father. 
He knows the will of God for you, and his prayers for you are guaranteed to be answered. Sixth benefit is the desire and the ability to ask. And the promise that the Father will instantly restore the fellowship which we have broken because of our sin and faithlessness. In other words, there's always a path back for the Son of God, for the child of God. You're never too far gone. The the path is never too covered with thorns, too obscured. You always can come and the Father stands ready at the moment of your turn to race towards you with arms open wide, to embrace you, to kiss you, to put a ring on your finger and to slaughter the fatted calf and to welcome you back into his fellowship. Seventh blessing as a result of our sonship is the, the blessings of fatherly discipline when we are wayward. That God the Father is so passionately committed to you as his child this morning, he will not allow you to stray too far or for too long. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. How true that is. How often that is our reality, and yet the Father will not allow He will not allow you to run too far. But he will seek you out. And he will bring about in your life the blessings of fatherly discipline that will draw you back that that you might share his holiness. Only a father who cares disciplines. Eight. The father's compassionate promise of provision. Don't worry about what you will wear or what you will eat or where you will live. For your father knows that you need such things and he will provide for you in his timing and according to his generosity every single thing you need. It is the non-child of God It is those that are outside the family of God that fret and worry and wonder. The child of God, there is no need to wonder. Just like your children, don't worry about what you will feed them. They wake up every morning confident that mom and dad will provide. It's a child of God in a greater way. For our God is not limited. His arm is not short. He will provide for you. And that takes us, beloved, into the ninth and new material this morning. The ninth benefit, which is security in the Father's love. Security in the Father's love. Look at verse 4. He chose us. He chose chose us. That's all you need to read. Think about that. God chose you. He chose you. Not because of any goodness inherent in you. Not because of your potential. But because of his love and his compassion and his grace. He chose you. Every single one of you here this morning is a child of God. He chose you. And that is why you are a child of God. We flourish in the security of a father's love. That's true at a human level. It's true at a human level. As children growing up in a family, one of the most significant influences on them is the stability of the marriage, the obvious love of husband and wife one for another, and in particular, the father's commitment to that family. 
Nothing will deform a family more than an absentee father. And I would suggest to you nothing will create greater security than a father whose love is never in question, who is passionate and committed to his children. We flourish in the security of the Father's love. He chose us, and he adopted us as sons. And he, because of his adoption of us, has granted us an inheritance in Christ. And the significance of that, my friends, is we need not fear our sinful past. We all have a past. There are, we all have those things for which we are ashamed. Those deeds and words and thoughts that once dominated us when we were members of the family of Adam. And for some, those old sins cast very long shadows. And there may be some out here who, this morning, maybe you're, you're just, there's always that little peak, that, li- that little hint of, of wonder. But I'm here to assure you, there is nothing, nothing that can separate you as a child of God. In the eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and I'll direct your attention there, This great chapter, beginning in verse 31, after Paul has declared his golden chain of redemption, in which he has linked predestination and election and justification and glorification together, he, he begins and he, and he asks a series of questions, interrogating, as it were, those who might raise objection to the security we have as adopted sons of the living God. How secure are we? And he says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? Let them come forward. Let them state their objection. Who will bring, verse 33, a charge against God's elect? Who dares to challenge your security as a son of the living God? God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Oh, yes, the evil one has his whisperings. Perhaps your conscience, misinformed, has its whisperings. Perhaps there is a human accuser, someone from your past who knows things about you and they have their whisperings. But Paul says none of it can stand. None of it can stand. For if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you are a son of God and you are secure in the Father's love. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul begins to to look all around. He examines the universe. And he declares at the end that he is convinced that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, this morning, take it to the bank. Nothing can separate you. From the love of God, if you are his child this morning. Tenth. The tenth benefit. The tenth benefit of being a child of the living God is a resurrection body free from the ravages of sin. A resurrection body free from the ravages of sin. Take a look at verse 23 in the eighth chapter of Romans. 
Paul says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, here it is, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, wait a minute. We are waiting eagerly for the, redo- uh, the adoption of sons. I thought the adoption was already happened. Yes. So are we waiting eagerly for our future adoption? Yes. Yes. There is a past reality to it, to be sure. That in union with Christ, you are an adopted child of God, but that the fullness of that adoption has not yet been revealed to you. You do not yet understand or know or experience all of the blessings that your Father has for you. The fullness of those blessings will not be experienced by you as long as you continue in this age, in this broken body, sold into bondage to sin. The older I get, the more I realize that this life just can't deliver all that I would like, all that I would hope. Even the best of relationships still are marred with sin. They just don't get there. They tease at times, but they never fully satisfy, never completely deliver. Can't do what I once could do. In my mind's eye, I am a much better athlete than I ever was in reality. The longer you are separated from those sports days, actually, the better you get. I suppose it's like a fine wine or something, huh? It just improves with age, or the memory deteriorates and the witnesses are gone, right? Something like that. But yes, the aches and pains are that constant reminder, constant reminder that these bodies are broken and failing. We have the devastating reminders of disease. Comes upon those we love, care about. Sometimes it comes upon us. We know it just not right. And yet, and of course, we have the ultimate reminder, don't we? Death itself. That enemy, that intruder. We have the realization that we were never meant to be like that. Wasn't supposed to be like that. Wasn't supposed to end like that. For the son of the living God, it doesn't have to end there. It doesn't end there. There is a resurrection waiting eagerly for our adoption. What adoption? The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Listen, when God created Adam, From the dust of the earth, he he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. Body and soul. Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, conquering death, and living now with that resurrection body. That is a body suited to live forever in the age to come. And as our first fruit... We look to Him to understand that what lies in store for us. And, and beloved, it is a hope. It is a comfort in days of sorrow. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter. The longest and most definitive chapter on the bodily resurrection. The Apostle Paul addresses some of the questions that arise or arose within the Corinthian church with regard to the resurrection. Now, understanding for the Greek mindset, the, the, the idea of the resurrection of the body was abhorrent. For them, the body was a prison house of the soul. And so to speak of a bodily resurrection was to cut across everything associated with Greek culture and, and learning. And so they had all kinds of questions. And one of their questions was, well, this resurrection body, well, what's it like? What will it be like? Paul answers it here and he uses the analogy in, in verses 39 and 40, 41, and he, and he talks about the reality that, that, that not everything in the, in the physical realm is, is exactly the same. Right? Men and beasts and birds and fish are not all the same. We don't, we don't, there's, there's a basic design function to be sure, but there's gigantic differences. He says, uh, you know, look up into the night sky and the same thing. Everything's not the same up there. And sun and the moon, stars, different. And he says in verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, the seed analogy. In other words, when, when you are laid to rest, your body will decompose. It is perishable. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown perishable. It is laid in the grave perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. In other words, that there is all this weakness and frailty and, and filthiness associated with it, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What's he saying? He is saying that no man can see God and live. That you cannot come into the presence of your Father fully in this present body. This weak sinful, failing body. But your adoption will be fulfilled. You will be granted a resurrection body, a body suited to live in the presence of God, unhindered for all of eternity. Revelation 21 and 4 and following says that in that day there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, for there will be no more death. Our adoption will be complete. 11. 
Another benefit of our adoption is that we are fellow heirs with Christ of eternal life. Fellow heirs with Christ of eternal life. That eternal life is not an endless existence, but is a two-way loving relationship with our Father. How blessed that is. Again, Jesus, in the night in which he is betrayed, in John 17, he says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As adopted children of God, we come into this loving two-way relationship. That which has existed from eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, in love and fellowship one with another, is opened now to us as His children and shared with us. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, fellow heirs with Christ. That is, that we inherit with Christ. What do we inherit with Christ? Well, there is a a long list of riches to be sure, but at the center of those riches is that relationship with the Father. Well, the Father says to him, You are my beloved Son. Well done. Well done. Come, sit with me. Join with me. First Peter chapter 1. Peter's driving at the same thing. Beginning in verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. An inheritance reserved in heaven for you. Unhindered access into the fellowship of your Father. Over in Second Peter, he again speaks to these things. Here he says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Partakers of the divine nature. We we share in the very life of God. Why is the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ so significant, so important? Well, certainly it is the exclamation point upon his sacrifice. It is the it is the the reality that his that the Father has accepted his substitutionary atonement, but it goes beyond that. For he now possesses the life of the age to come via his resurrection. And he then shares that with us. We are joint heirs with Christ. We we also, by virtue of our sonship and our participation in the resurrection, will also have the life of the age to come and with it the unhindered fellowship in relationship with our Father. In a related way, number 12, Christ becomes our brother. Christ becomes our brother and our high priest. Christ becomes our brother 
and our high priest. Again, the eighth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, where the Apostle Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, that is Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Two seventeen of Hebrews. Therefore, he that is Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He had to be made like his brothers. Christ is your brother. You ever thought about that? Christ is your brother. That means he shares with you, or perhaps better said, you share with him a certain family identity. A certain family identity. Over there in 829, Paul says that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. That is, that God is at work in us because we are sons of God to make us like our older brother. And he is using the all things that work together for good to do it. Over time, you and I increasingly bear the family likeness. The family likeness. You know, in some families, the family likeness is pretty strong, isn't it? There are certain families, you look at their children, and there's no doubt. They're all, you know, they're all related. Others, it's not quite as strong initially. Sometimes the, the family resemblance doesn't appear just physically on the outside, but it is in more in temperament and the way people respond to things. And they, as a parent, you go, because oh, it's usually the things they respond to that you're not so thrilled with in your own self, right? That would be one family relate or um, you know family image, or family identity. I wish you wouldn't share, you know, but. But you see it. Over time, you and I are becoming more and more like our older brother. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. Because he is the one who is beloved of God. He is the one whose character is acceptable to God. He is the one whose understanding and approach to life delights his Father. It's a good thing to become like your brother. Thirteen. Another benefit of our adoption is, is membership in the family of God. So up until this point, we've been sort of focused on just a parent-child relationship, as it were, becoming like our father or, in this case, you know, like our older brother. Now we're, we're talking about a family relationship. That is membership in the family of God. One of the words that is, that is used with some regularity in the New Testament to refer to the New Testament church is brethren, or it may be translated in your Bibles as brothers or, or brothers and sisters even. 
It's the idea of a, of a family. It's a family. We are a family. We are a family because of our adoption by God. We all have the same father. If we all have the same father, then that makes us what? Brothers and sisters. You got it. Makes us brothers and sisters. And this familial relationship transcends the natural realm. Transcends the natural realm. Again, some have grown up in wonderful families, loving mothers and fathers and, and just all of the blessing, that are, temporal blessings that are associated with that. And others of you have had less than desirable situations. Some of you have had downright terrible situations. But as a child of God, we all together share the same wonderful family. Because we all share the same gracious and loving Father. Reminded in Luke 18... the power and the beauty of this relationship, this family relationship. And by the way, when we become children of the living God, in a sense we trade in the old temporal relationships, right? And we are adopted into this new eternal relationship. For some, it's a, it's a pretty significant severing. Again, for some of you, and your commitment to Christ may have cost you physical, temporal relationships with brothers or sisters or parents or grandparents, perhaps even children. But what you have received in return far and away surpasses anything you have given up. Anything. The 18th chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 28, Peter's struggling with some of the sacrifices that he and the others are called upon to make. And he says to Jesus, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. You may have given up house, home, job, social connections, familial relationships, wife, brother, husband, children, grandparents, all that the world would hold dear. And Christ says that you will receive back now more. Many times more. And eternal life. family of God. How significant it is, and yet how often we undervalue it. Fourteen. The 14th benefit of our adoption is the divine moral code and our family identity. the divine moral code, and our family identity. The fifth chapter of Ephesians. Paul writes there, 
Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, be like your dad. Bear your family identity and the moral code that distinguishes this family from all others. Sets us apart. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 14 and following. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Do not be conformed to your old natural family. Do not be like your, your old father, your natural father, but be transformed and be like your new father, your adoptive father. Be holy as he is holy. There's a clear and clarion call. So in our lives, to, to, to demonstrate the reality of the adoption that has occurred. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 16, Jesus addresses this same thing, same idea. Where he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Live in such a way that people will observe the change and will glorify your Father. Philippians 2 15. Pick it up in 14. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Well, that's confrontational now, isn't it? He doesn't say, you know, just avoid the the worst perversities of those who do not know God. He, he gets down to the, the grumbling and disputing stuff. You know, the, the more socially acceptable sins. Do all things. Do all things without having them tainted by grumbling and disputing so that we will... Demonstrate we are children of God. That is, that we will bear the family identity. Every family has their own way of doing things. You know that? It identifies them. You've got your own way. You've got, you know, certain... And if, and if you don't think that's true, ask a newlywed couple... I can't tell you how many times in premarital counseling that the young, fresh-faced couple sits across the table from me and assures me that they have talked about everything and that they are in perfect agreement. And I just smile and nod 
And then begin to ask them some questions. Like, do you squeeze the toothpaste tube in the middle or the end? Does the toilet paper roll over the top or the bottom? Well, that's ridiculous. Nobody cares. Oh, really? (laughs) Get married. You'll find out. We all have our family way of doing things. We bear the identity. That's true in the natural realm. It's so much more true here. A significant part, my friends, of that family identity is this transcendent moral code. It is written in our hearts by the Spirit of God. It's part of what it means to be a son of the living God. And 15th, and finally, and for all those out there who were placing wagers, (laughs) you lose. 15th, and finally, unity with others in the family. Another benefit of our adoption is our unity. Here, in this realm, we have that family identity, the membership in the family of God, but but with it comes a unity, and it's a a transcendent unity. That is, that it it transcends, it's greater than all of the natural things that would either take us apart or draw us together. We're not sitting here together this morning because we're all best friends or because we all share common sports interests or, or, or hobbies or political persuasions or, or any of the other natural uh, sorts of things that draw people together. For if that were true, we'd be a club. But instead, it's, the, the powerful thing is that, is that we're here together Because God has done something in us that transcends all the things that would normally and naturally rip us apart. The fourth chapter of Ephesians, Paul speaks about this reality. He says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that means there's something for us to do here, and we'll, eventually when we get to this section, we'll tease this out in much greater depth. But notice he says we're to preserve something, not create something. We are to preserve that which already exists, and that is the unity of the Spirit. Newsflash. You don't get to choose your brothers and sisters. Did you know that? Right? You don't get to choose who you're related to. And that's true here as well. In the body of Christ. In the family of God. You don't get to choose. Praise God. Praise God that we don't get to choose. For we would certainly bung it up, wouldn't we? Yeah. I mean, after all, who would want to be in a church with everybody just like us? I wouldn't. One of me is plenty. And one of you is plenty too. We have this unity of the Spirit. Remember, we said the first benefit, right, of our adoption was the indwelling spirit. And it is he who creates that unity, the family of God. These are blessings, incredible, transcendent blessings that are ours by virtue of our adoption.
And if you're here this morning and you don't have these blessings, you don't know these blessings, you've not experienced these blessings, that would be because you're not a child of God. These are not something that we have to work for or strive towards. These come to us by virtue of our Father's love. And there's nothing that I would want more than to, than to see you experience the delight, the glory, the comfort, the intimacy that comes as a child of God. But you can't know that intimacy unless the barrier of sin is dealt with. There's a gigantic wall that separates you this morning from God. It is the wall of your own sin. And there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot scale it. For in the process of climbing, you would merely add bricks to the wall. You cannot dig under it. You cannot go through it. The words of the Bible, you are without hope in and of yourself. And there's no friend that can do anything for you. There's no mom or dad that can do anything for you. There's no benefactor save one. That in order to make a reality out of God's determined plan to adopt men and women, boys and girls as his children, he sent his own son into the world to break down the wall of sin, to smash it open and and create a clear pathway to him. Jesus died so that you would not have to. He paid the penalty for your sin if you will have him. If you will call out to him, confess your need, claim his death as your own. For all who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then you too will know the blessings of adoption, the peace that passes all understanding as a son or daughter of the living God. May you not leave this place this morning without resolving that issue. Let's pray. Our Father, what a joy and a privilege it is to call you Father. Such an intimate term. So filled with meaning. That we can call the God of the universe Father. And we confess, our Father, it is not because we sought you, but because you sought us. We love because you first loved us and sent your Son to be the sacrifice that would turn away your righteous wrath against our sin. And so now, As a result of your indwelling spirit, we are in a new place and status. We've gone from being enemies to being sons, sharing with your only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the intimacy and 
closeness and fellowship of that relationship that he has known for all of eternity. And so, Father, whatever is facing us today, whatever lies heavy on our hearts, whatever distress, whatever burden, may you help us to recognize and to find strength in the reality that you are a loving Father and that you are at work in us, honing the family identity. And Father, we pray this morning for that man or woman that's sitting here, that boy or that girl, that young man, young woman, who is outside the family, who has come to to recognize that reality in their own life, that they know about you, but they don't know you. And most importantly, you don't know them. Oh, Lord, be merciful to open their eyes that they might flee to Christ and there find his arms wide open for them. Save, O oh Lord, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.